Good afternoon, or good evening, and welcome to Inside the Writer's Studio, the podcast where we talk with writers about their lives, their craft, their business, and their latest work. I'm your host, Charlie Lovett, and our podcast is sponsored by Bookmarks. Bookmarks is a literary nonprofit whose programs include the largest annual book festival in the Carolinas. Come visit Bookmarks at our community gathering space and nonprofit independent bookstore in downtown Winston-Salem, North Carolina. My guest today is Sarah McCoy, whose new novel, Marilla of Green Gables, was published earlier this month. Sarah recently moved south from Chicago and is now one of those lucky authors who call Winston-Salem home. So today I get to interview not just a fellow novelist, but a friend and a neighbor. Sarah, welcome to Inside the Writer's Studio. Hi, Charlie, and hi, everyone listening. I love that intro. I love being (laughs) able to have a sense of belonging finally to yeah. a community which I definitely feel that here and bookmarks is has become like you my first indie family that has just embraced me and I am now part of the Winston-Salem community and I love it so yeah this is such a treat for me to be able to talk to you my neighbor <laughs> and, <laughs> and to just you know enjoy books and uh, the season that we're in and so much, so many good things going on right now. We can tell, I'm sure our listeners can tell from the title of your novel that it's set in the world of the Anne of Green Gables books. This is a series of nine novels by Canadian Lucy Maud Montgomery that were published beginning in 1908. What's your own background with Green Gables? Did you read the novels as a child? Did you watch screen adaptations? How did you first come to, to know Anne? Yes, D, all of the above. Um, I <laughs> I was introduced to Anne of Green Gables by my mother. And my very first recollection of not so much um, the, like, the text, but the imagery of Green Gables uh, was connected to seeing my mom with the book in her lap at bedtime, which is sort of that odd dreamy time when um you know the lights are low and you're all snuggled up in bed and so my mom said I must have been about four or five that's the first time she read it to me um as sort of a bedtime story and so I remembered that sort of segue of the book and the imagery of the book, the flowers, and then, you know, each season had its own celebration. Lucy Montgomery does that very well Mm -hmm. um, with each chapter is sort of a celebration of the season. So it's like the blooms of the summer. And then we have the beauty of the fall and October's and, and then we go into winter and the crystal and the fairies of winter. And, and so she's very good at that. And I absorbed that as a very young child. And, remember that fondly, that imagery with, again, the connection of my mother and sort of bedtime and that fictional dream world. And then I didn't read it for myself until I was about seven. And that's when my, one of my aunts, I have two, I'm Puerto Rican, so we call them TTs. Mm -hmm. So my TT Gloria, she bought me the book because she heard that I loved Anne of Green Gables and it was a three book volume. So the first three books in a one volume, like Bible size set. And so that was a gift she gave me. And I just remember that first book feeling like, oh my gosh, this is so big. And so many words, I will never be able to read this by myself (laughs) without help. Or it's, you know, I'll be an adult by the time I read this. 
for, you know, totally. And within a year, you know, it's funny how time for a child, you think time is so infinite and then it really isn't. <laughs> so within a year, I read the whole book and there came my first sensory memory of that. You know that feeling, Charlie, when the first time you're a child and you read a book that is so big and so adult feeling to you. And it's so, um, it gives you such a feeling of satisfaction and like you close the book covers and there's pride and there's satisfaction. And you just, it just all is part of that reading mystique really. So again, there was that child when I was about four or five, that, that imagery was that Anne Green Gables imagery. And then when I was about seven, I had that first feeling of love of literature with this book, particularly. It was my first, I did this. I read this amazing book. I took this adventure. And then, you know, I really feel like fate was setting me up for this, you know, for four decades later. <laughs> um, because right around that time, about a year later or so, the uh, Kevin Sullivan PBS Anne right. Marie Gables series premiered, and it was like the world went Technicolor Green Gables. I mean, like everyone was talking about it. My mom was watching the series with my TTs were watching with me. We're all sobbing. We're all loving it. <laughs> you know, my friends in the neighborhood were all talking about it. I, um, I even went so far as I think that year I. I didn't request. It was. It wasn't even. It wasn't a request. It wasn't a demand. It was just like this is how life will be. My birthday that year was an Anne of Green Gables themed tea party. Every my 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 mom and my and my TTs all came dressed up in the gar. You know, in the dresses with puff sleeves. All my friends came. So it wasn't just a child sort of obsession. I saw my mom, my grown mother, my grown aunts, these women I admired, equally obsessed and equally participating in this Green Gables world. And so um, so that was part of it. And then a few years later, um, when this series, I think it was 87, so a few years later, um, uh, the series had the second part of the book. So Anne of Avonlea, they made right. into the version, and, and then... Um, you know, so it like continued and then it stopped and it was like this void. I mean, I really felt like mournful loss. Where is the next? I have read this. I read it in the Bible size, you know, Green Gables Bible my aunt gave me. I know there is more Green Gables. Why are we not seeing it on TV? So I started a petition. <laughs> <laughs> I know my mother said, don't cry about it. Cause I was literally in tears. She said, do something about it. My mom is not a coddler. She was a career elementary school teacher and then a elementary school principal in the DC area before she retired just this past, um, at the end of the last year, she retired. So that's, a, she's a very go getter, do something, Sarah personality my whole life. So she said, don't cry. Don't sit here in your room and, you know, oh, do something. So I said, I'm going to start a petition. I'm going to get all the signatures I can. I'm going to send this petition to Kevin Sullivan Productions, and we're going to make this happen. We're going to do this. So <laughs> <laughs> I, the petition went all around my neighborhood first. 
mothers, daughters, brothers, fathers, anyone. And then I, I decided that wasn't enough, so I was going to take it to school. So I took it to school and circulated through my whole grade until every teacher and every student I knew had this petition signed. When I thought there were, it was about 100 and something, and I thought that was massive, that was like, you know, the world, I sent the petition with a letter, an engaging letter, like we got <laughs> From a 10-year-old, a very, very, you know, this-must-happen letter um, to Kevin Sullivan Productions, and bless them, they wrote me back. And they said, I'm sorry, but, you know, we have gone to the extent of where we can go with Lucy Mom Montgomery's work, and this is where we're stopping for now, and stay tuned, because maybe, but right now we have no plans in the future. And... I was kind of devastated. I was kind of, you know, like, I want more Green Gables. We need more Green Gables. And my mom reminded me of that petition because she said, you know, you were yearning for more Green Gables than even you had read. And because then I continued doing the series, and I, you know, there's so many more books. But I just wanted more right then. She said maybe that was sort of a foreshadowing of, Deep down inside, you always wanted more Green Gables in the world. And, you know, here was your your opportunity now, like I said, four decades later. So a lot of kids would, would respond to that when they became adults uh, as looking back on a favorite book and saying, I want more, so I'm a writer, so I'm going to write a sequel. But that's not what you said. You said you were going to write a prequel. Why did you decide to write before the first book by some decades rather than afterwards? Right. Um, I also am a firm believer in absolutely respecting what has come before you. And Lucy Ma Montgomery wrote a book that, you know, a series, Anne of Green Gables. It was about Anne Shirley of Green Gables. That was the book. That was the character that she wanted to take from that moment when she arrived at Green Gables all the way through the rest of her life. And so, um, I respected that. And there's nothing I can add. I am not losing Mama Montgomery. I cannot add to that story narrative that she flushed out. It's so perfectly executed. It's so beautifully done. I would never try. Um, but I was always fascinated by Marilla. Mm-hmm. I always just something about her was fierce and yet um, understated and witty and all these things that I admired. And there were all these clues I felt like in the novels that she is included in before she passes away, um, as to her past and that it was a juicy past, you know, (laughs) like it wasn't just like, Oh, she did this when she was younger. It was like, Oh, you know, um, Gilbert Blythe's father, John, some people called him my beau. I mean, like, how can you drop that? You know, I got the, when I read it, I'm like, but Maud, how can you drop that tidbit on us as readers and then walk away, you know? So <laughs> clearly, I felt like Maud knew, and, and you know this, we're both writers, you know all the characters' backstory, even if you don't flush it out on the page. Absolutely. So I felt like Maud has a whole backstory for Marilla that we never got to know. And we will never know Maud's exact backstory for Marilla. But I 
decided to take up my, you know, my pen like I did as a as a youngster. I'm going to do something about this. I'm going to we're going to make this happen. So I decided to take up my pen, get into the books and highlight and notate every place that Marilla speaks was spoken of, a memory is mentioned, a past was alluded to, um, someone else talks about her or her past. I went through and just tore, not tore them apart, but I just, very OCD about the, you know, the first three, four books. And there is such a story there. And then I knit those pieces together and be and I say this in my author's note, I am Sarah McCoy writing Marilla of Green Gables. I am not trying to be Lucy Mom Montgomery writing right. Marilla of Green Gables. So I knit those I took all of Lucy Mom Montgomery's the bread trail she left me and I put it together and then I wrote it as Sarah McCoy. I wrote what I envisioned as Marilla's backstory. And so that's really what led me there. And it's not, I didn't even think of it as a prequel, to be honest. I thought of it as Marilla of Green Gables, her story. Her story, right. Yeah, that happens to start in um, 1837. Yes, there's a there's a, a, a preface to this book, or a prologue, sorry, that um, begins closer to when she's about to adopt Anne, but the story, the meat of the story, really starts in 1837 because it is Marilla's story. And, um, you know, I there was so much there, to be honest, Charlie, that this is just, this book is just a fragment of so much that I had <laughs> in my head. <laughs> and still do. Anne of Green Gables is set in the smallest Canadian province, Prince Edward Island. You said you're from Puerto Rico, so you know a little something about living on islands, I assume. My family and I had a chance to visit PEI back in the 1990s when it was still only connected to the mainland by a ferry, and we went to Green Gables and we wandered that whole that whole area. But tell us about your own visit to the island or visits and, and what you discovered there. Oh, what a dream. And like I've told you about sort of my familial obsession. So it was me, my mom, my aunts, we're all, we always dreamed. We said, well, one day we're going to go to Prince Edward Island. And you know how life is. Yeah. We just all got busy and I moved to El Paso, Texas, which is a world away. And I was there for almost 10 years. And then I was in Chicago, like you mentioned, and just moving, moving, moving. And I was writing other books and I was doing research on those other books. I was going to those places, back to Germany and um, my first book, back to Puerto Rico. So there just never seemed to be a good time. And then... um, when I sold the idea, I, we actually agreed on the idea for this book, which was just a one line, you know, the story of Marilla Cuthbert from Anne of Green Gables. Mm-hmm. When I, my publisher, Harper Collins, and my editor there said, We're gonna, you're going to do this, then I said, okay, well, I got to go to Prince Edward Island. I got it now, you know, the, the dream's got to come true now. So, um, that was the opportunity for me. So I went there and like you said, it was incredible. I flew into Halifax and I spent some time in Halifax because that was the um, inspiration for Hope Town, right. the fictional Hope Town. So I wanted to get a good sense of that 
location because it does factor in and is highlighted in Mural of Green Gables. They, they go to Hopetown. Um, and then I, like you, I drove and then got to the docks and we took the ferry over. It's and the only I, way to go. It's, it's so authentic and so, oh gosh, right. I know you know this feeling, but it's like when you, you think, okay, I'm on the ferry. This is great. This is normal. You know, okay, this is cool. And then you get to within eyeline of, or eyesight of Prince Edward Island and it starts to come on you and it's, mm-hmm. it's closer and closer and the, the island is actually red and yeah, it's yeah. just and the birds are flying over and it's unlike anything you might have even thought you would experience there and there's lighthouses and it's amazing it's amazing so um we went over i went over and i did research there um during october and my mother came over to help me just experience it together you know because she was the first person to read it to me and I wanted to have this this memory not just for the um production of authenticity in the book but also for her and I as mother and daughter and who you know two people who shared this kinship and this love for Green Gables so she came over and she's also an amateur photographer so she took all sorts of photographs and it was beautiful it was beautiful I stayed at this um wonderful uh place called the Gables of PEI which was right near Stanley Bridge so I got to spend some time there and um walking it's all you know you've been it's all walking oh yeah yeah. It's so close. If you drive, it's like a minute. Everything's a minute between each other. So, you know, I was at, um, well, what shocked me and it was interesting, it would be interesting to read to listeners and readers is that there is not one Green Gables. You know, we all assume that Green Gables is based on one Green Gables. And then I, during my research month there, I discovered that's completely erroneous, that there is one tourist green gable right which is actually the cousins the mcneil cousins of lucy mom montgomery and they live next door to lucy mom montgomery's own house which was she lived with her grandparents her father um went west and remarried her mother passed away when she was a very young child so she lived with her grandparents on the mcneil farm stead and next, and so that right now, today, if you go and visit, that is just ruins. There right, is nothing right. staying there. It's just ruins. But that is where in her journals, because I read her diaries in her journals, that is where she said that um, the white way of delight was actually based on driving into the McNeils, her grandparents. So that was based on that and, you know, all these other the or the um the orchards that was all around her grandparents' house that she incorporated into the Green Gables world, um, and then next door she would run to play with her cousin, and that was her cousin McNeil's who lived next door at what is now Green Gables the Heritage Place, right. which is a tourist site, and that was made into Green Gables to look like what everyone wanted Green Gables to look like. It didn't originally. <laughs> 
Um, and so, and they got the, you know, they got sort of the blessing to be the site that um, uh, a lot of the filming was done on for different uh, adaptations and all of that. Um, and then you have the Campbells at Silverbush. This is getting real for those of you who are <laughs> in fans, It's getting real deep here. Um, so then the Campbells, which is her favorite Aunt Annie, and she loved her Aunt Annie, Anne with an E, so much. And she would go over there and spend, um, oh, God, weeks, months, sometimes whole seasons, like a whole summer she would spend over there. She had her own room over there at Silverbush. And that is now the Anne of Green Gables Museum. And so the mu- all three of these locations... And also, to let people know, by the Anne of Green Gables Museum, her favorite Aunt Annie Campbell's house, that is where um, the Lake of Shining Waters is. So, again, there is no Green Gables. It yeah, is yeah. fictional. It is it exists in a, in a realm that we can never actually walk. But these three locations in Cavendish make up the Green Gables world. And if you go there and visit... All three of them are equally uh, stunning, and all three of them feel so Green Gables and feel so much a part of um, Montgomery's own life and upbringing and the lore of her writing this book that you can't, I can't say any one of those is Green Gables. I never would say that. One of the Um, things that struck me about just walking around the island, having spent my summers in Western North Carolina, is I felt like this is like, Piedmont and mountainous North Carolina farmland with these beautiful rolling green hills. But then just beyond them is the ocean. It was like if if Ash County had an ocean. Um, Would you read us an excerpt from the book? Sure. Let me get my, get my trusty book. I'm, and by the way, I'm reading from the very first final copy. I know that my editor just sent me yesterday. So, this thing, I'm like, I mean, literally, I'm, I don't know if you can hear it, but I'm like cracking the spine open. Um, and I decided that I will read at my events, the prologue, and I've read some other chapters, but everyone always wants to know about John Bly. Everyone's so obsessed with Gilbert Blythe, as am I and was I. And so uh, through all the podcasts and interviews and and things I've done um, so far, everyone says, well, what about where's John Blythe? Where's, what about the Blythe? About? So in order to give your listeners a little taste of that, I'm jumping into the book to Chapter 8. And it is called Marilla Entertains a Caller. Marilla was just finishing up her prayer shawl for the Ladies' Sewing Circle project. The Sunday school had a total of 50 shawls. Hers and Rachel's made 52. Mrs. White said that any number over 50 was substantial enough that the shawls could now be presented to the Hopetown Orphanage. So Marilla had it in mind to take hers over to the White's house, where she'd been invited to dinner. But suddenly there came a trot and whinny of a horse outside. Matthew and Hugh were bailing hay in the stables. Clara was resting, and Izzy was on the back porch holding a gummy paintbrush, flecks of yellow on her cheeks. She decided that the wooden chair in which she sat to read to Clara ought to be painted yellow. 
Bring a little spring sunshine into your mother's room, she'd said. So she'd gotten a bucket of paint from Mr. Blair and set up a paint shop off the kitchen. Somebody's calling, she hollered through the open window. I hear them, said Marilla. Probably Mrs. Sloan, the woman cornered me in church about bringing over the family copy of Rules of Good Deportment, as if we needed the refresher. Those Sloans never change. Izzy shook her head. Would you mind being an angel and collecting the book? Tell her I'm presently indisposed. Shouldn't take but a minute. Marilla agreed, but when she opened the door, it was not Mrs. Sloan, but John Blythe. Why, hello again, Marilla. Uh, hello, John, she stuttered. Her hair lay in waves around her shoulders. The ribbon that had once secured it had fallen out earlier, and she hadn't bothered retying. What did it matter to her cat skunk and her skeins of yarn? But now she felt exposed and feverish under his gaze. I've come to see your brother, Matthew. John wore a linen day suit, not the farmer's togs of their last meeting, all dressed up like Sunday on an ordinary Tuesday. Please come in, invited Marilla. Matthew is in the barn with father. I can fetch him for you. Yes, thank you. Marilla turned to go, but he stopped her. Could I trouble you for a drink first? Spring's a fickle friend. One day freezing and the next day the sun would like to bake a man. Sweat stippled his forehead. Of, of course, I should have offered from the start. I should have sent word that I was coming. They both exhaled and exchanged smiles. Marilla fetched him a glass of water from the kitchen. Seeing her through the open window, Izzy leaned in with raised eyebrows. It's not Mrs. Sloan, Marilla whispered. It's John Blythe. Come to see Matthew. Izzy cocked her head. The dairy farmer's son? Marilla nodded. So why are we whispering, child? Marilla cleared her throat without answering and returned to the parlor. That's all I'm going to read right now, but that's just a little introduction. A teaser. Uh, I, I think you hear, you get a sense in that chapter of something that I notice in, in the opening chapters of the book, which is that Marilla has a certain naivete at the beginning of the novel that means sometimes we as readers understand more about what's going on than she does as a character. How do you use that tension to build the relationship between yourself as a writer and us as readers? Um, you know, she's 13. She's 13 years old in 1837. She lives on a rural farm in the middle of an island you know, on off in a colony, but you know, in, in sort of a colonized place. I mean, it's just she's so remote yeah. that um, I that definitely is part of it. First off, that's just being authentic to the character. If I made her too knowledgeable, that would be too contemporary. You know, and today thirteen-year-olds are like. 22 year olds they like know it all you know they're on instagram they're on their you know iphones they got it together but back then it was just a different world a different time period they were very remote um and also i did a lot of research into how lucy montgomery portrayed her own characters um again wanting this book to be a seamless fit Right. I wanted people to either read all of Anna Green Gables and then come circle back around and decide to go into Marilla of Green Gables and Marilla and feel like it's a seamless, you know, 
transition or to not have read Anne of Green Gables, those who haven't read it, to read Merle of Green Gables, love it, and decide I'm going to read all of Lucy Montgomery's work and it feel like, okay, now we're just continuing on the story. Yeah, that's that's so, really cool when that happens. I had that with um, my novel First Impressions. A lot of people would read that and then say, I'm going to go finally read Pride and Prejudice or I'm going to read Pride and Prejudice again. And, you know, you feel like you're, you're sort of getting a double whammy. They read your book and now they're going to go read a, a book that the book that inspired you, you know. Right, and there's no greater compliment or joy for well, we as writers, we're first readers. And so there's no greater joy than to share these incredible works that some people don't read because they just think they're old books. And that's crazy. They're incredible. <laughs> so, um, I, so yeah, that was part of it. And you feel, I know you know this feeling, you feel so honored to be part of the legacy Absolutely. in any small way to add to the brilliance of the storytelling that came before you. So, um, so I wanted, again, to keep that. And Lucy Mama Montgomery happened to be writing in, you know, she wrote the book before it was published. So 1908, it was published. And that was the Victorian era. And that was very, you know, mm, very, I don't want to say rule-driven, but there was an etiquette and there was a grace and there was, you know, a certain uh, naivete, as you said, to the people of the time. And so she, that, you know, these characters and this story was then being projected through the naivete of Maud Montgomery, um, onto the page. And so there are all these filters going on. And so, um, I wanted to keep a bit of that, um, but also bring it into a contemporary world where we, in this book, see a little more than Lucy Mom Montgomery let us see about right. Anne Shirley and about the Cuthberts. I think that was really important to make this book, again, by Sarah McCoy, not by Lucy Mom Montgomery. Um, so, and also, Marilla is a darker character, which opens, I love darker characters, it, which opens all kinds of beautiful doors um to really getting into the uh i don't want to say darker side but the more complex side of our humanity and while also keeping it very refreshing because that was the world that that montgomery created avonlea and green gables was a refreshing world it was a beautiful world it was vivid it was full of life and colors and adventures and dreams coming true all of that um and now i'm putting on the filter of marilla cuthbert marilla of green gables who um was a darker character and saw things a little not a little a lot more practically and that's not a darker lens. It's just a different lens right. to Green Gables. And I think that adds tension, though, is, you know, that sort of what you just asked about building narrative tension, um, seeing things, the reality of things and that things are difficult and that times are hard and that we are struggling not just as an island, but we're struggling as a nation. Canada's politics at the time exploded into two um factions that were fighting each other very much like our America and you know it was about you know staying with the crown or becoming an independent nation of of Canada right. and it was the conservatives and it was the liberals and neighbors were against each other and they started making it 
like uh, not just a um a politics thing but a religious thing like oh well if you really are a godly god-fearing person then you're gonna side with the king or and or queen who she was in the middle of this book she is coronated uh, or Victoria, now all my all my history facts are getting all jumbled now. <laughs> but well, that's right though. Eighteen thirty-seven, Victoria becomes right. queen. You, you got it. Victoria <laughs> becomes queen. Victoria, um, and so you know, do we stay with that or do we come independent? Are we rebellious? And so all these things were coming together as this thirteen-year-old. Very, very dynamic age, right? I mean, me at 13, I was a train wreck. (laughs) So, uh, you know, finding love, finding first romance, your body's changing, you're becoming a man, you're becoming a woman. You know, all these things come together in this book. And that, that drives the narrative forward. That's very complex. And so I loved, I loved dealing with all those different internal and external um, complexities to make this book. You say that this book is a Sarah McCoy book and it's a book that's written in or published at least in, in 2018, not in 1837 when it's set. And it allows you, I think, to do some things that you wouldn't have been able to do if you were writing the book in 1837. Do you see Marilla as a a feminist heroine in an age when we need those? Absolutely. I'm glad you asked that question, Charlie. (laughs) I definitely, I actually, (laughs) Just wrote um, a, an essay about about Marilla the feminist. Yes, I I do think that she is an early feminist. And again, the term feminist. Oh, it's so. Oh, people have such a strong reaction to it, and I wonder if it's because there's a certain generation, my mother's generation, and I, I had a long conversation with my mom and my my titties, my aunts once about the term feminist and feminism. And, you know, they said it was difficult for them because they came up in a time where the term feminist meant that you kind of hated men. You were kind of a man hater, but they love men and they, and they love their husbands. They love their sons. So they didn't identify with that. And that was difficult for them. And I think feminism has come such a long, far away from that stereotype. We, I'm a feminist and I love men. Um, <laughs> that sounds kind of funny. But well, I mean, I hope we're also at the point where I can say I'm a feminist and I am a man. So <laughs> my husband, my husband, you know him well, Doc B, he tells everyone at work, I'm a feminist. And I go, men are feminists too. Now we have come to that place where it's about um, equality and respecting each other and, you know, cheerleading across the genders. And um, that's where we're at now. And I think if you look at it in those terms, Marilla is absolutely a very, very early feminist in that she is about being equal to the men in her life. And I think in this book, she is portrayed as equal. And I think Lucy Montgomery, I'm not doing that. That was groundwork that Lucy Montgomery had in the series. I mean, why else would we have Marilla be the one who sends her brother, her older brother too, Matthew, to the train station to pick up a child? And then when he brings the child back, and surely it is Mar- Marilla is the one who has the say if this child stays or not. It is all on Marilla's terms. She is the boss. Um, so from 
from the beginning, that is the case. And then we have Anne Shirley, who then is raised to be uh, celebrated in her accomplishments, in her standing up in front of the class and being the, you know, trying to win the spelling bee or standing up and giving an oration. She is applauded. You know, she is celebrated for being a mighty woman and a feminist in her own right. And so this is the groundwork that I had. So it was already there. And I also don't think I, from the beginning, when I was younger and I associated and had an interest in Marilla Cuthbert, I wouldn't have had that association or interest if she weren't built as a early feminist. I, I think a young woman learns how to be a grown woman in part by observing the grown women that she comes into contact with. And there are two women who, at least in the early parts of the novel, are particularly influential on Marilla's development, and that's her mother and her Aunt Lizzie. Talk about the contrast between those two characters and what Marilla learns from each of them. Yes. Uh, so Marilla's mother is named Clara, and then she is, well, I won't give it away, but she's a sister, and her name is Elizabeth. She goes by Izzy. And these are the two women um, that she really has the most contact with again, because they're in a war, a rural setting. And at least when we start, it's very contained to the farm and the family. And as the book blossoms and as Marilla blossoms as a woman, her realm of experience and people begins to get bigger and bigger and, you know, more people she meets and more friendships and more women in her life. But at the very beginning, it is just Clara and, and Izzy. And these two sisters are, um, I wanted to show that again, that one definition of a feminist didn't have to, to be the case. So you didn't have to just be this, um, businesswoman out in the world, really taking things by storm. That's one kind of feminist. The other kind of feminist is a quiet woman who could live at home and be the feminist of her family in that she is um, treated equally, that her husband respects her, that her, the men on, you know, in her realm on the farm respect her and they come to her and they look to her as an inspiration. That is also a feminist. You know, that is someone, I wanted to show those two sides, and that's yeah, what these two definitely. characters are. So Clara is her mother, and she's very loving, and she's a little bit softer, not a little bit, she's a lot softer, and she is, tends to the home, and she um, is pregnant at the beginning of this. She's the nurturer, and she is a feminist, and she, you know, is that side of femininity and, and feminism. And then her Aunt Izzy comes, and she lives in St. Catharines. She has moved and she is a dressmaker and she has her own business and she is not married. Um, and she has made it out there in the world. She has gone out there and she is sort of that go getter businesswoman feminist. And so these two come together and it allows Marilla to see both sides of the coin, so to speak. And, and I think allows readers to see both sides are equal and both sides are necessary and both sides are, are incredibly powerful in the upbringing of a well-rounded feminist woman. Yeah. So she's you know, a girl at the time, but that's how she becomes a feminist woman, like well-rounded. I love this line of Marilla. She says, 
a homely thing can become quite extraordinary if given the chance to prove itself. And it kind of reflects one of the things that Izzy tells her, which is, and here again I'm quoting, there's a greatness in the ordinary. What does she mean by that, and how does that affect Marilla as she takes on the world? Um, you know, I think so often we do, we, we praise the outlandishly beautiful or the outlandishly dazzling or all these things that are just, you know, uh, in terms of looks and personality, anything that's just really sparkly. We, our human nature is to praise that and to set it on high. And I think, I think that's a bit wrong. <laughs> you know, I don't want to offend anyone out there, but that's a bit wrong when so many of the, at least in my world and in my perspective and the older I get, I see many of the things that are most precious and most beautiful and most treasured are often these quiet things, these small things, you, you know, sitting on my, on my porch and listening to the trees um, in the breeze, you know, just these small things, my, my dog sleeping, like the sight and sound of my little nine pound <laughs> dog sleeping, a little snore coming from him. I, that is so precious and so beautiful and brings me such joy and peace. And I want to celebrate those things more. And I think at, when I was younger, I definitely associated with, um, and Shirley. So like, the splendors just had me and I was wowed by all these things in the world and in fiction. And, and that's the same with Anne, you know? And I think Anne says that line though. She says, you know, I don't need marble halls. She comes to that. Mm -hmm. She, you know, when she tells Gilbert, I get chills, Charlie, that's how much I love this, that book. <laughs> I get chills even saying the lines, but she doesn't need that. She doesn't need starburst and marble halls. She just needs you. And that's that same um, that same message that I think she learns and Shirley, and I think Marilla embodies from the beginning of at least the, the Mom Montgomery's Anne series. She's very practical. She's very about that, but she's also very dark and she doesn't know how to see the beauty yet yeah. in both the spectacular and in the practical. And so I wanted to kind of, um, use this book, Miller of Green Gables, to show why she had a problem seeing the beauty in things. And to show also how she struggled to find the beauty, and yet the it's like Aunt Izzy has opened that door in her heart, already cracked it, and then Aunt Shirley swings the door open, but she's cracked it to her to put that message inside of her that, you know, um, there is... There is be beauty in small things and yeah. quiet things. Look for that. These different nuggets in Marilla's life are sort of, in writing the book, I had to put those down so that way we understand why a girl like Anne Shirley would be able to, to open her up. Because if she were, you know, cynical and dark and all that through and through then we wouldn't really, it wouldn't flow into the series that she right. then right. adopts this girl and, and opens up to the beauty of things. I think you're so right to take that attitude. I think one of the one of the wonderful things that art can do, whether it's a painting or a play or a novel, is to celebrate the miracle of the ordinary. 
We like to end every episode of Inside the Writer's Studio with the same 10 questions. You should be able to answer each in just a few words, but hopefully they'll give us all something to think about and give our listeners some special insight into Sarah McCoy. So if you're ready for the speed round, we will begin. Okay. (laughs) What word do you love to work into your writing? I don't have a singular word. I really don't. That's okay. That's a fair answer. Okay. I don't have a... There's... Yeah. No. If anything, I try to find... New words. My my thesaurus is my best friend next to me. I love new words. So I like maybe that's it. I like working in new words. What word do you hate to encounter in other people's writing? Uh, mostly. Whenever I think mostly, mostly. Where's your favorite place to write? My office. Where could you never write? In a cafe. Never. <laughs> To what rule of grammar do you pay least attention? I don't want to pay attention to this rule of grammar, and yet I do, but I don't want to. And that's run on sentences mm-hmm. because I think there is a beauty and a lyricalness. Na- you know, the nature of a run on sentence can be very beautiful and lyrical and can bring on an emotion for readers that a static sentence sometimes can't. So, what was the first book you remember reading? Well, I I told you one of my first memories is my mom reading me Anne of Green Gables. And I feel like we just talked about that, but that's the truth. What are you reading now? I'm reading now. I'm looking around. I have so many. I'm like, you know, like you, I have like three books for for advanced blurbs. And then I've got, let me see. Oh, I know. My guilt, not guilty, but my pleasure reading right now, it's called, um, it's by my bedside, so I don't even have in front of me, uh, through a glass darkly, and it's by Harlene Cohen. My editor recommended me read it, and it came out years ago, and it's so good. What book would you like to have written? You know, my friend Madeline Miller's Circe. That was brilliant. What sort of book would you like to write, but probably never will? Hmm. Science fiction. I love science fiction. And finally, what would you like to hear a reader tell you? I would like to have a reader tell me that I have opened up a new chapter of Green Gables for them. This has been Inside the Writer's Studio. I'm your host, Charlie Lovett, and the podcast is sponsored by Bookmarks, a literary nonprofit that runs the largest annual book festival in the Carolinas, and operates a new community gathering place and independent bookstore in downtown Winston-Salem, North Carolina. To find out more about Bookmarks and all its programs, visit www.bookmarksnc.org. My guest today has been Sarah McCoy, whose new novel, Marilla of Green Gables, is available wherever books are sold. And of course, you can get signed copies right here at Bookmarks. Sarah, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me, Charlie. During the busy fall publishing season, Inside the Writer's Studio will post new episodes on the 10th, 20th, and 30th of every month. On our next show, we'll be talking to New Yorker writer and author of The Lost City of Z, David Gran, about his new book about Antarctic exploration, The White Darkness. Until then, thanks for listening, and may you read with wonder and write with passion.